If you are ready to change the way people experience the transition to parenthood, you've come to the right place. On this podcast, we interview postpartum professionals, academics and researchers, as well as parents with unique perspectives on postpartum. Whether you've been working with new families for decades or are brand new to postpartum care, we'd love you to join us. I'm your host, Julia Jones. So today's podcast is a little bit different. We have Nardine from SheBirths and me, Julia, from Newborn Mothers, and we wanted to sort of collaborate and interview each other and sort of just have a a conversation together um, about our work. Now, Hello, I say hi as well. It feels so weird. It's like a double. I know. We don't really know who's hosting. (laughs) We don't know. We just thought we'd jump in. (laughs) But I do want to give you a little bit of a plug um, because you have the world's only scientifically verified childbirth education program, which is how I first came across you because you've got lots of media and news about the the evidence-based research behind your childbirth education. So do you want to tell us a little bit about that, what it is that you actually do and, and how you um, and how it works? Sure, absolutely. Thanks um, for having me on your podcast. Thanks for being on our podcast. Too. Yes, and thank you for having me on your podcast. <laughs> Before I launch in, I just I suppose we'll let our listeners know on, on the SheBirth show as well that we're so excited to have you with us talking about the Ayurvedic approach to postpartum care and leading the sort of training in postpartum doulas around the world with you and your great work. So it's great to have you as well. Um, I started SheBirths, I suppose the seed of the idea probably started when I had my own child uh, over nearly 18 years ago now. And I wondered what the heck is going on with birth education? Why did nothing prepare me for my labor experience? And I started to wonder about birth and why it was so different for so many people. And the pain was experienced in different ways. Complications happened, even though people had prepared the same way. And physiology and anatomy didn't appear to be so different among certain women. And yet the disparity of experiences was so broad. Um, And every time I tried to talk about birth and Uh, what was going on no one seemed to know the answers or there was just a whole bunch of like myths and taboos and so I just started exploring and researching and training and became a doula like yourself um, as soon as I could and realized there was nothing great enough out there for people preparing for childbirth I felt and I wanted to create a really comprehensive holistic preparation that allowed people to feel really confident before birth, really bonded before birth, but also go through birth in an enriching and empowering way and come out the other side believing and knowing that they were friggin' awesome because that's how you want to come out, right? No matter how birth unfolds, you want to know inside yourself that you've given it everything and you've had the best support and the best preparation. And that's what good education and good support can give you. So, Mm. yeah, I created SheBirths. We launched nearly 11 years ago now. And then the research was done with Western Sydney University and the National Institute of Complementary Medicines. And that took ages, years and years. And it was uh, run as a randomised trial. Uh, People were literally recruited from the delivery, uh, the antenatal 
ward as they were waiting for their appointments. The researcher would walk around with her iPad and say, would you like to be involved in this trial? You know, are you a first-time mum? You know, are you low risk? Um, and they'd just be designated if they said yes into either the control group, which was receiving standard hospital birth education, um, and then the intervention group was the SheBirths program for two days. So it was a two-day intervention, just like the course has always been. I wish it was five days, but, you know, <laughs> there's, no, there's no bloke in the world that's going to want to sit in a birth education program for more than <laughs> two days. So my partner's like, you can't make it any longer than that. <laughs> And so, yeah, the trial results came back and they were so good that they had to go back and do the stats again because people thought that they'd got it wrong, all the, the, the people at the uni. Yeah, wow. So the outcomes were, were that different. Yeah, they couldn't believe it and no one was expecting it. You know, this is women's healthcare, this is maternity, this is birth education. Nothing really significant happens in this space. Um, we know from Cochrane reviews that birth education is a lovely thing to contribute to lowering anxiety and maybe it allows women to come into the hospital uh, further dilated in active labour rather than pre-labour. But often it actually increases epidural rates. Wow. Good. Yeah. Because, uh, because a lot of the education is, is hospital-based and all they do is show you the pain management techniques that they have. Well, they might not even show you pain management techniques, but why do you call it pain management? Why? No, that's right. That's but they will tell you you can it. have. Yeah. they'll tell you you can have gas or you can have an epidural. Those are your options. Yeah, and look, there's such a variety of um, different hospital courses as well. There are some that are really great, but it is true that unfortunately the majority aren't great, um, and women come out often feeling more afraid um, mm. and certainly lacking in confidence uh, in themselves and in their partners and not being given practical tools for birth. And, you know, what I realised, it's not just about the tools as well, it's about the philosophy. It's about the attitude that you hold inside yourself and that requires an educational system and transformation for us to align with. So, yeah, basically the stats came back. Um, they were published in the British Medical Journal in July 2016 and we had a 44% reduction in caesarean sections and we had, which is 44 is my favourite number, by the way, always has been, <laughs> so I was pretty happy with that, um, and a 65% reduction in epidural usage. And then we had a 50% reduction in the use of synthetic oxytocin to augment labour and a 53% reduction in the resuscitation of babies after birth. Wow, that is amazing. That's mm. so amazing. I mean, even I think a lot of doctors and things wouldn't actually believe that childbirth education could improve the health outcomes of a baby. I mean, that's incredible, isn't it? Yeah, now Dr. Andrew Bissetts or Professor Andrew Bissetts is actually one of our board advisors now. And yeah, we I went straight to him and I showed him the data and he was in tears and I was in tears and we were just so happy and he just said like to see that reduction in resuscitation of babies is just so fascinating and so important and so profound as we know and he even said about the 12% reduction in perineal trauma which doesn't sound like a huge amount um, he just said I've spent you know 
40 years going to conferences around the world, getting excited about a 2% reduction in perineal trauma. So education really does make a difference. Preparation can empower you and create a really high degree of maternal satisfaction. And that's what we're always tracking in our own um, research as well, that we've continued on um, online and we've done a private hospital trial and we've done lots of great things and we want to continue doing more research as well. It's very important. Yeah, it's very inspiring to me that you've done all of that research. I think it really makes a big difference, not just for for you and your course, but for the whole industry and the culture of of Mm. birth really, doesn't it? It has a big impact. Yeah, I think it does. I think it's a really important thing. And, you know, some people say, oh, the, the trial was only a small 176 births, but actually... You know, some trials that are included even in Cochrane or um, RCTs that are run sometimes 25 to 30 births, some of them. Mm, yeah. Valid. So it was a gold standard. There was qualitative and quantitative data collected and it was a true controlled trial. They even weren't able, without quite a lot of hunting in the she-births book, which was not called a she-births book, they could see a reference to she-births in their, their booklet that they were given, but they weren't even, you know, encouraged to look online, to go beyond those two days and a very small booklet that they were given. Mm. So it just shows you that uh, it makes a difference. And so far you've been teaching most of this yourself in real life. We have, well, that was actually, those, that trial wasn't conducted by me. I was mentoring um, the educator. Mm. Yeah. felt that was even more valid. Yeah, I agree. That's great. Yeah. And, and now you're moving into online work too. So it's not just people in Sydney and the east coast of Australia, but now people all over the world can access this. Yeah, we do. We've got um, educators in Victoria and around New South Wales And then we have the online program that you can do via the app, so in your phone, via an iPad, and a really fantastic learning management system, you know, that people just Mm. stare into their Apple TV and they can jump on the floor and start doing, you know, yoga and acupressure for pre-labor and breathing techniques Mm. and all that kind of stuff. Just to make it accessible to everyone is, is what our vision is. Yeah, I love it. And, and of course, the question and the angle that I'm always coming with is um, how do you, with that education, prepare people for postpartum and motherhood as well? Yeah, and that leads into, I think, you and I share a huge, um, we have an alignment in our values and in our philosophy. SheBirths is actually a Vedic program, is a yoga-based program. That's my background. And I started using yoga to heal myself from the age of 16 of severe anxiety disorder and then clinical depression. And I became a yoga teacher long before it was trendy, um, 24 years ago, to mm. share that with the world. So Shibats is is a Vedic program, but you don't certainly have to be a yogi to do it. And I know that you're Ayurvedic in your approach as well. So we give quite a strong emphasis on slowing down during pregnancy learning the art of self-care as a sort of teaching for motherhood during your pregnancy and learning that art of interdependence and and receiving care during birth as well. 
which is another teaching for motherhood. And then very important is that we give ourselves, if we can, the 40-day rest period because that sets us up for the next 40 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of the principles and the intimacy that's developed uh, during the She Births program really are foundations for how we parent or how we work as a family unit. And so we facilitate a lot of interesting conversations throughout the program. And I know that people email me and their kids are like seven, eight now, and they're like still doing those visualizations on the tube to work in London. Mm-hmm. And so you like she births gave me life skills and an attitude that has stayed with me till today and I'm still using it all the time. So mm. about the wisdom of nature and our innate wisdom and intelligence, I believe. It's just a nature-based philosophy and spirituality, isn't it, the Vedic approach? Yes, exactly. And we've, we've talked about this a little bit before too, but about the spirituality of becoming a mother because I know that's a really big part of what you do, which I love as well because that's what we have in common too, that you have both a sort of scientific grounding and the Ayurvedic influence and, and also this kind of spiritual, more you know, intuitive, feminine uh, um, approach. So I think it's really magic when you can combine those different um, sort of elements Mm, that's right so tell me how do you come to be a postpartum doula I just don't think firstly there is enough postpartum doulas I don't think people understand what a postpartum doula really is and how important they are tell me all about how you became yeah well you know my journey uh, was actually before I even had children I wanted to study Ayurveda and I realised that I, I wasn't going to be able to do like, you know, six years in a university in Kerala. <laughs> so I was like, well, I'd rather specialise. I'd rather, you know, be really good at one area. And that's how I came across postpartum Ayurvedic care. And I just thought, wow, this is amazing. Um, and I kind of, before that, I had a background in sort of community development, social justice. I was always, you know, sort of um, interested in, human rights and feminism and that kind of thing. And I, I always saw that when women had babies that this was, that in our culture it just wasn't right, you know. People were so isolated and so alone. We had no support and no stories and, you know, so that was kind of how I came into it um, also through my Ayurvedic background. And then it's obviously grown a lot from there. But I think what a lot of people don't realise is that traditionally when people, you know, would give birth in traditional cultures, they didn't necessarily need a lot of help with giving birth. You know, it's more the idea of the knitting midwife, that if people are prepared with the right sort of stories, you know, and and a lot of our culture of birth is about avoiding unnecessary interventions, you know, Mm -hmm. so if that didn't exist, then women just can tune into their bodies and, um, you know, like really trust that innate power and give birth quite naturally and and easily um you know in in a long time ago before we Mm. have this kind of industrial culture of birth that we have now Mm. um and when we were still more in touch i think with our feminine wisdom and feminine power you know when those kinds of uh, lineages were still there but but what people don't realize is that originally the word doula was actually postpartum support. It was a word that was coined by um, Diana Raphael, who was an anthropologist um, who passed away just recently. But she really devoted her whole life to understanding 
um, postpartum care off the back of her own very difficult breastfeeding journey. Really? And to ask the question, why is it so hard for women in our culture to breastfeed when the entire human race has done this for, you know, millions of years in, in hundreds of different cultures, well, thousands of years in hundreds of different cultures, you know, why isn't it working in our culture? So as an anthropologist, that was obviously her approach was what is missing in our culture that makes it so hard to breastfeed? Um, so dual, the word doula was originally for postpartum and then it got changed because I think because um, donor at the time who were the sort of the main doula yeah. organization they were really concerned that um, doulas were going to separate postpartum doulas were going to separate mothers and babies they thought it was going to be something like a, a night nurse you know where we actually uh, it becomes an intervention it becomes something that that comes in between the the mother and baby and, and interferes with that bond and interferes with breastfeeding and that kind of thing, which was never the intention. And actually, Dana Raphael found that postpartum doula support, the specific role, exists in 178 different cultures wow. around the world. So, you know, when I found all this out, I was like, no wonder, no wonder it's not working in our culture. You know, this is, this is what we're missing and what did Dana come up with when she was exploring that as an anthropologist? It's such an interesting perspective to look at what is missing. Yeah. So, well, the way that she phrased it, which I loved, and I, I wish I had the exact quote in front of me, but she, she sort of basically described that it's rare to have a biological function of the body, like breastfeeding, that requires social support. But what she found is that when someone was alone, they couldn't breastfeed. That was basically wow. it. That they needed to have a, someone there who was loving, listening, you know, nurturing, feeding them, caring for them, um, and that without that other person standing there, this biological function didn't happen, which was such a really mind-blowing um, revelation. Wow. I mean, what does that come down to? I mean, that just leads into so much around your work and the training that you provide for other women to give that work. So does that mean that we just need more oxytocin in the room or? Yeah, well, that's right. If you want to look at it from a scientific point of view, oxytocin is obviously the letdown um, reflex, the hormone that, that makes your milk actually come down. So even if you have milk in your breasts, but most women who breastfeed will have experienced this if you're in public and um, you feel like someone's staring at you or you don't feel safe or, you know, someone is judging you, then even though your breast is full of milk, it won't actually come out and, you know, your baby might be fussy because they're sucking and the milk won't let down. Um, you know, so again, the, the support that we require is the support that's increasing that oxytocin, which is actually involves needing some privacy as well. So, you know, it can't just be like having thousands of visitors drinking tea and leaving a mess. It has to be, you know, someone you trust, someone who cares about you, someone who's not, you know, interfering or giving advice or passing judgment, but just someone who um, is really just there to listen and care for you and, and hold your hand and say you're doing awesome, you know, and, and in the same way that when you prepare people for giving birth, you want them to feel confident and calm and, and like they can do it, you know, and it's really just the same thing with postpartum. We have so much in our culture that's telling mums you're not good enough, you know, you're too much like this or you're too much like that and it's never going to work and it's too hard and, you know, that's just mm. undermining everything. Yeah. 
It is. I mean, there's so much rewiring that needs to happen inside a woman, her partner, during that pregnancy period. We're not just working with the body, we're working with her brain, right? And mm. she has to become the master of her own thoughts. And we have to not just approach... I mean, I think it's so interesting. We... Um, send out enrolment forms to all of our families prior to coming to SheBirths. And it's a form of self-reflection. We, we don't consider ourselves to be a prescriptive course in any way. It's a self-reflective program that you take from it what you want. Mm -hmm. And so part of the questions we ask is in levels of anxiety for the mother, for the partner around birth and around parenthood. And there's, without a doubt, over the last 11 years, the anxiety numbers have got higher and higher towards mm. birth. But often I will see, and this has really shocked me in the last five years, the anxiety levels about parenthood are higher than they mm. are birth. Yeah. Which only is informing me of the negative narrative that is continuing and perpetuating around our globe through media and, and the lack of support because I love that um, belief that's held in lots of traditional cultures that if a woman, a new mother experiences postnatal depletion or depression, then it's the community, the village that has failed her, not yes. herself. Yes. Oh, so much. Yes. That's exactly, exactly what I think. And yet in our culture, we have such a culture of mother blaming. I have women all the time, no matter how many blog posts I write and stories I share, you know, and people I interview on my podcast, I will still get regular emails from women saying, I thought I was the only one. Are you sure that it's not just me? I thought I was failing. I thought I just couldn't cope, you know. And so, you know, the narrative is so strong that, you know, if you're not back in your skinny jeans and you're not running your household three days later and, and earning money and, and cooking and cleaning and having, you know, like sugar-free birthday parties and, you know, it's just like there's so much unrealistic pressure that people think, wow, it's my fault that I'm not coping and it's not at all it's our society that's um that's failed them that's right so should we talk about that should we talk about like what in the ideal because obviously people we don't in ayurveda one of the best rules is like go for what's best and go for the optimal but if we can't have them then what's the next most optimal what's the next most optimal and so on because the world and is always changing, nature is always changing, every day is different, and all of our families have different experiences, different amounts of family around and support around. A huge amount, I would say 50% of the people in Sydney that we teach, um, I'm not sure in Victoria, but 50% are experiencing what I call the immigration effect, where they have no family. I'm sure the same in Perth, right? Yeah, definitely, yes, because we have a lot of people move here for mining jobs, so they've left their family behind. Yeah, and you were saying you think there's going to be a big backlash from that down the line, I reckon? I think there is. I think there is. I think, you know, we've spent a long time, and it's a very masculine sort of world that we live in now. The patriarchy is still so strong. Um, but this idea of looking outwards for answers, you know, thinking if we just get that job or move to that place or, you know, even travel to another country, then we'll find the answers we're looking for. But again, as the feminine 
side of things is awakening, I'm sure people are going to realise that they have the answers and they have everything they're looking for in their own heart, in their own home, in their own street, in their own village, you know, in their own family. So, uh, you know, I am hoping that, um, that people will become more settled, I think, over the next generation or two. Yeah, that's, I think it sounds great. I think it sounds amazing. And I love the idea that, yeah, as the feminine is being awoken more because that's what She Births is all about and that's one of the reasons why it's called She Births, much to everyone's kind of confusion. Um, <laughs> it was, I think, one of the first businesses in the world to have she in it and everyone was so perturbed by it. But it's it's has to be called that because it is about let's bring balance and let's restore the feminine power yes that we're awakening you know which is exactly why i call newborn mothers newborn mothers and without a doubt you know every time i reach a new audience or run some ads or you know guest post somewhere where it's not my usual people um, someone will always say what about newborn fathers and and my answer is what about my left knee that's just not what i'm talking about right now you know if men want to take this journey on too you know they can teach and share and learn and reawaken their own wisdom but specifically what i'm talking to is the feminine and that doesn't mean to exclude people who have different gender identities or um things like that but it's but everyone man or woman i think you know is needing more feminine balance in their lives right now so yeah i love that i think I think we really do need to be talking about she and, and her and women and mothers um, yeah. more prominently and start putting that at the centre of our conversations. Yeah, and valuing that and valuing motherhood. Like mm. still astounds me that some partners go, oh, I'm, I'm babysitting the child. I'm, and you're not babysitting the child. You're being a parent, you know. Mm. And what about at the same time when she's at home doing housework and caring for the child, like she's being a mother and that's valuable. And why doesn't the government give a little bit more money to those women who are staying at home and raising mm. their children? Mm -hmm. I think that would be a good thing. But anyway. Oh yeah. I mean, it would have to be a good thing, wouldn't it? And, and, but it's like all women's work, whether you're a teacher or a nurse or a mum, none yeah. of it is paid or rewarded or acknowledged adequately. But I noticed, um, Nadine, on your website, you use the word we parent. So you have she births and we parent. Yeah. Yeah. That's I right. love that. Yeah. It's good. We're creating an, um, a parenting program. I've been doing it for years, but I've really got a knuckle down also writing my book far behind you've done two already I can't <laughs> believe it um but yeah we're writing a, a parenting program now and um it's it's really exciting but it is a we parent approach and so let's talk about it I mean what's happening to the woman the baby the partner and let's like jump in I suppose to the nitty-gritties and give people like top tips for let's should we talk about maybe the first 24 hours after birth because it's such a radical change time as well yeah yeah i don't know you know i almost include that first 24 hours is almost still part of the um the birth really so you might be able to talk more to that even yeah. then than i can but i think probably um you know the obvious things like like rest and spending time with the baby you know, but also I think something that people often forget is um, the food is really important. And particularly if you're in hospital, if you can line someone up to bring you 
something nourishing after the baby's born. Uh, you know, the meal that you eat after you give birth is often the best meal of your life, even if it's like cold Vegemite toast from the hospital, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but just because you are so, um, oh, just so ready and in need of nourishment. So if you can make that good nourishment rather than just, you know, something microwaved and whatever the kitchen yeah. the had left at, at the hospital, yeah. I think that can make a big difference if you have that first meal be something really wholesome and nurturing and particularly sentimental, something that feels really nostalgic and, and joyful for you. I love that idea. I think that's so special. Um, the birthing process is such an emptying on all mm. levels. Obviously, we've emptied the womb now and it's a, a cold, dark space, um, that um, vacuous space. And it's going to take time for that to come back to its original size and that lower dantian um, to come back in and the body to recontract. Um, and the birth is a cleanse on, on a sort of psychic, emotional level and on a very much physical level. She loses a lot of blood and through the placenta, lots of toxins are released from the body. So she's been emptied in so many ways and to fill the mother up with something really nourishing and meaningful I think is such a great idea but I must say even after birth often that first little thing so say a woman's given birth vaginally then I would literally bring in like straight from the little tea room the midwife's tea room you know a sugary milky cup yeah. of black tea and a piece of toast two pieces of toast with butter and vegemite you know yeah and honey before she even stands up to have her shower i think yes. it's really important to get that little bit of fuel in there and then um and then beautiful food like you say and, and cesarean mums i would definitely bring in um more liquid foods um mm -hmm. Certainly broths are so important and all that kind of stuff because it's, it's just a little harder to go to the bathroom and um, the drugs can kind of block up the bowels a little bit more. But what, I mean, you've got a recipe book. What do you suggest? Well, probably the most popular first food from my recipe book is a Nepali um, rice pudding recipe. I think it's up on my website if people want to go and look for it. But it's a, it's a quite a... Um, like it's made with basmati rice, which is lighter than, than the kind of sticky short grain rices. Um, and then it's got lots of, you know, cinnamon and, um, yeah, nutmeg and uh, all sorts of delicious, um, you know, dark brown sugar and, and some ghee and that kind of thing. So that's probably the most popular thing. A lot of people who, you know, do my courses and things, that they, they'll have someone in mind that when they go into labour, they'll say, hey, can you prepare my rice pudding, you know, so that they, they've got someone who's going to bring it for them um, straight away. I'm up in Byron Bay right now on call for a birth. I've just flown up from Sydney. My girl is in pre-labour and so I think I better get cooking. Rice pudding. I think that sounds great. Yeah, and it is exactly what you said. It's a good hit of sugar because, you know, like we live in such an anti-sugar um, world and obviously I don't think that it's great to eat a lot of processed sugar 
um, and refined sugar. But, you know, as you mentioned, the Vedic sort of philosophy is that, that it is a huge cleanse um, having a baby. And in the really one of the strong, strong principles in Ayurveda that I see missing in a lot of Western cleansing kind of philosophy is the idea of rejuvenation. In Ayurveda, you would never do a cleanse without then closing those loops you know without making sure there that you, you don't want to leave the body open because it's then vulnerable yeah. um so after any kind of fast or after giving birth or any other kind of cleanse that you do then yeah it's really important to strengthen and rejuvenate the body afterwards um, as well are you listening to this awesome interview with a postpartum professional and thinking that this might be your calling in life too Do you believe postpartum care could be a respected, valued and well-paid profession but feel frustrated and don't know where to start? Newborn Mothers Collective is online worldwide postpartum training and professional development with over a thousand students from 40 different countries around the world. We value human rights, scientific evidence and diversity and we'd love you to join us at newbornmothers.com. And I suppose, so when you're putting, because we do recommend our girls go completely processed sugar-free and only have, you know, our suggestion is like one piece of fruit a day or one teaspoon of honey or maple syrup during pregnancy. But what are the benefits in Ayurveda of putting in that beautiful brown sugar or um, to the pudding? What do we find there? Yeah, well, traditionally in Ayurveda, they would actually recommend you eat sweet foods only for three days. <laughs> Amazing. Yippee. Yippee. I know, I know, which lots of people are excited about. Um, but, of course, it's not using white sugar. They, in, in India, they use, you know, jaggery, which is the... Oh, my God, I love jaggery. Oh, it's so amazing, isn't it? And you can taste the minerals. I mean, it's rich and it's got a really full flavour. It's completely different. And it doesn't... You know, white sugar is, um, in Ayurveda, is considered rajasic because it's... Means, mm. Which means it's, like, exciting and, you know, it's too, uh, too stimulating um, but then when you separate the treacle, the treacle is tamazic, which is dull and, and heavy. But actually when you keep the sugar together in its original form, it's sattvic, which is peaceful and calm. So again, it's only through that process of processing it that you stuff up the kind of original um, quality and intention of the food. And I think, you know, the other thing in Ayurveda is that sweet food, it, it represents love. All foods ha- have emotions mm-hmm attached to them and sweet doesn't have to mean sugar it can mean complex carbohydrates and fruits and you know as you mentioned things like maple syrup and and all sorts of good natural whole foods Mm. um but but we often do crave those foods because we really need that that love and that nurturing and that grounding kind of stuff Mm. so um yeah so we definitely don't really restrict those good kinds of of sweet foods um you know in in postpartum um and and you know in india probably they even go to a little bit extreme because some of their postpartum foods are really quite sickly and particularly these days because they often have transition to white sugar um you know which means it doesn't have that grounding and and the minerals and things that that natural sugars do yeah yeah i love it i think you know those we recommend when girls are craving sugar during their pregnancy to go for the sweet potato and basmati rice as a sweetness to it as perfect miso soups and all those sorts of things as well they're so good fill yourself with sweetness is absolutely still good 
Yeah, exactly. And that's how, that's how people should think about sweetness too. It doesn't mean that you're having like cakes and biscuits every day. It means that you're having, yeah, like good good quality whole foods. Mm. Um, and, yeah, sweet potato and basmati rice are just perfect. Delicious. Yeah. So for the first three days, um, I suppose a lot of our mums as well after four hours would go home um, mm-hmm. straight from hospital once, you know, everything's been checked and mum and baby as well and then get into bed right and and have their sleep (laughs) for three days and 40 days inside the house there's going to be a huge amount going on for a lot of people just even thinking about that uh totally petrified of cabin fever particularly if you live in a tiny apartment in Bondi like me um what what's the whole theory behind 40 days of confinement yeah, we have so much resistance to it in our culture and I think it's because we do just go, go, go. Um, and obviously people who are extroverted, you know, what increases oxytocin is positive social connections. So for some introverts that's going to include a lot more privacy and for some extroverts that's going to include a lot more, you know, cups of tea with friends. Um, but best of all, if you can... Um, have people visit you at home who you're comfortable with in your pajamas and you know you don't mind if you if they see you you know with your boobs out and um you know you might have an adult nappy on and that kind of thing so you you know you want to make sure that if you are the kind of person who would get lonely that the kinds of people that you're inviting over into that very sacred private space are the kinds of people who are going to just love and adore you you know in in all of those moments of of um you know, there's lots of fun stuff, isn't there, that happens in those first few yeah. days. <laughs> totally. Absolutely. So what should they, what should mums be transitioning towards um, after their three days of sweet food? Uh, mushy foods. So like you were mentioning, stocks and broths and um, soups and kidgeri obviously is, is one of the most important Ayurvedic foods, which is just rice and lentils um, yep. cooked together. Um, great recipe for kitchery in our she births course as well yeah perfect so that would be another really traditional first food too so people don't have so much of a sweet tooth um that's a really great thing to have but but we kind of say it's a bit like when you wean a baby that you start with mushy foods and you move towards more solid foods and you start with things that are easy to digest and then you move towards things that are um more exciting or adventurous or unfamiliar to you you kind of save them for later Mm, sounds good and you know bone broths weren't around in india um, and certainly not in the south of india where the majority of people are vegetarian what do you think as a an ayurvedic practitioner about the bone broths and well, you know, it's interesting you say that. In in Ayurveda, it's considered meat is considered a medicine. So it's although it, they're all vegetarian, it's not part of their daily diet. If someone was really needing strengthening or um, was iron deficient or needed to build up their blood, then bone broth might have been used in a medicinal way. Um, and also, now that I've done so much more research about other countries, so many countries around the world have bone broth as as one of their primary postpartum um, food so you know if it feels right for people I think that's a really is a strong um, 
you know, that's a very common traditional postpartum food to have bone broths. But at the same time, if you don't like it or if you're vegetarian, there's no essential food. So, you know, you have to choose what's going to bring you peace and joy as always. Yeah, that's right. I often find that um, vegans, there's nothing like um, motherhood, early motherhood to move you back onto meat. So it's interesting that you call Mm. a lot of vegans transfer to eating meat through broth. Um, postpartum just because they're instinctively intuitively calling for that medicine for needing more strength um, not just if they're anemic but just I think they get that inner strength that bone strength yeah that's right and some people I'm vegetarian and I never did eat um, meat but I definitely had a lot of ghee and, and if you, you know, if you're feeling really conflicted about it, you can try and find some local, you know, grass fed, free range um, cows, you know, see if you can just get some, something really good quality, um, you know, and, and maybe just feel, uh, feel about it as though, you know, if you feel like you really need it, that it is just a me- medicine. And, um, you know, I don't think anyone should feel guilty if they feel like that's right for their body Absolutely. at that time. Yeah. And do you have an, an attitude towards dairy? Well, dairy, dairy is well-loved in, in Ayurveda because they don't have meat, they don't even have eggs, so it's the only source of B12. Um, you know, so in, from that perspective, um, milk, and because cows are sacred, then milk is very revered food um, in Ayurveda, especially ghee. So, again, in, in our modern world, it gets complicated because of, you know, all the factory farming techniques and, um, you know, the environmental impact of, of, of um, land use from cows and that kind of thing. So everyone kind of has to make their own, their own call on what's right for them. But from a nutritional perspective, um, it's considered, ghee is considered one of the most important foods you can eat in postpartum in India. Mm. And it does so much, not just for like your digestive fire and, um, but for your brain. Yeah, exactly. It's so grounding. It's really nourishing. It, it lubricates your, your body. Um, yeah. And I think a lot of people find that again, if they can find source, some good quality, um, ghee that they feel ethically okay with, then the, you know, the benefits just are so great. They'll just eat it and just feel like, oh, that's exactly what I was looking for. <laughs> yeah, no, it's such a powerful one. Okay, it's so easy to go down the food. Um, yeah, and I actually wanted to backtrack a bit because you never told us your top tip for the first 24 hours. Oh, first 24 hours. <laughs> um, baby gaze, fall in love. Yes. um, Ice packs for your fanny. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So um, if if you do leave home, um, like if you do leave the hospital, sorry, at that four-hour mark, make sure that you are set up at home for rest. Often you'll be coming home, I suppose, to a chaotic house if you've left at mid-labour, which a lot of people have. And just to be able to practice letting all of that go and prioritise falling in love and having space to meet your baby and continue the very important profession of baby gazing. Mm -hmm. So often babies will have a, a nice big feed after birth and then that's after that first feed then partner can have first cuddle, one mum showers and then 
we get mum ready to go home or if she's comfortable and wants to stay in the hospital and she feels safer there and more supported there being able to ring a buzzer every time she's breastfeeding then do that as well mm-hmm. um, and and let your baby feed as much as you want um, they want and have lots of skin on skin time I think that's really important yeah yeah I totally agree and there's so much in that first 24 hours, isn't there, that we could talk radical. about. So it's hard to choose one. <laughs> yeah, it's such a radical transformation uh, and shift in the body-mind. I suppose the best way to think about it, it sounds weird, but, you know, when we injure ourselves, when we hurt some part of our body, it's so critical that we rest immediately mm-hmm in order to get the quickest healing and recovery time. So bringing as much sort of emphasis to that immediacy after birth, that first day after birth gives you a better week, that first week gives you a better month, and then that Mm. first 40 days gives you the best 40 years. So everything leads, it's one continuum, and resting straight after birth is, is very important. Yeah, and, yeah. and so we bind for some women, um, just a gentle bind if that feels nice for them to walk around. But often, like our belly belts might not fit mum straight after birth, and it might feel like too much pressure, too sensitive. But mm. she might want to wear it for an hour or something if she can have a massage, even for half an hour, um, like day one, day two after birth, uh, to settle vata. Then I think that's an amazing practice as well to implement. And mm. yeah. um, what about your four-day tip as we're kind of moving into that? Yeah, the four days. The first four days. <laughs> yeah, well, you've talked about those little dietary changes and then I think, you know, day three roughly or a bit earlier sometimes or a bit later, um, our milk starts to flow and we need to have the essential cabbage um, with all the beautiful anti-inflammatory properties in the fridge and I think it's always so interesting when milk comes in. For some women, their boobs get ginormous and hot and engorged and sore. And for other women, it doesn't happen like that. And mm-hmm. it's actually no correlation to how much milk you're producing as well. So I think it's good to have the cabbage. If it doesn't feel right for you, you might not even need it. Uh, yes, I'll, and I'll add to that, it happens at the other end too. Once people's milk supply regulates at about six to eight weeks, I have a lot of my clients saying, I think I've lost my milk. Mm. Um, and it's not true. Actually, what's happened is your body started to regulate its supply better so you don't get it engorged and leak um, as often. So it doesn't mean the milk's not there. It just means that it's gotten better at preparing, you know, at the right time for your baby. So you know, a lot of people I see moving into formula and thinking they need to do top-ups and things, but mm. it's very, very normal. It, you know, how much you're leaking and how engorged you are is not necessarily related to your milk supply. Yeah. And then, I mean, when milk comes in, it's such a big shift again in hormones and women um, go through that dramatic increase in prolactin and dramatic reduction in progesterone and estrogen. So that reduction in progesterone and estrogen is a mirror. If you want to try and understand, it's a mirror to PMT. It's what Mm -hmm. happens before you start bleeding with your monthly cycle. 
And so think of it like PMT times 100 and prepare for it like that. It might not be that strong, but it can be. Mm. And so you'll feel incredibly sensitive um, and vulnerable, teary. Prolactin is the, the teary hormone. And it's a time when we really want to fall into that nurturing energy of prolactin and prioritize our baby and not have to think about visitors. So I think it's a time for privacy, calling in reassurance and, and the doula is critical. The postpartum doula is really critical mm. on that day when milk comes in or those couple of days. What do you think? Yeah, I totally agree. And that's often the first visit I'll have with a client is in that first few days. Sometimes if they've had a really difficult birth, I might go and see them in hospital. But in general, it'll be, you know, a few days later, once they're home, and, and everything's starting to just feel like, oh, wow, that just happened, you know. <laughs> yeah. And all the emotions are coming up and the milk's coming in. And, yeah, it can be really big. And, and I think leaning into that is such a good point that you, that you make, you know, because we do tend to see being emotional as a negative thing. It's not a negative thing. It's a perfect, perfect skill for a mother to be emotional you know so I think actually leaning into and embracing that change is um is part of it isn't it yeah and you know I talk a lot with my couples about boundaries create better births Mm -hmm. and boundaries are going to create better parenting experiences too for you and it isn't about having an open door policy like at all and in this postpartum period, like you've already said, but boundaries around particular things and trying to get a visual while you're pregnant of like what it might be like postpartum and and imagine and dream what the ideal kind of postpartum experience would be, I think is an interesting one to contemplate. Yeah, I love that idea because the other thing that happens when you imagine is your body starts to produce those hormones. So even if you're finding it's not going to plan, but if you can start to visualise how you want to be feeling and how you want things to look, um, you know, it can actually start to move you into that space um, emotionally, even if other stuff is going on in your environment that's not ideal. And we know that women who spend more time thinking about being a mum actually are more likely to have better birth experiences as well. Mm. They're focusing on that end result, but possibly they're also producing those beautiful hormones internally. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, oxytocin is such a a powerful hormone. and, And for some women, you know, it's peaked at crowning and then it's in that hour after birth. Um, that it's existing at these really, really high levels to the point where it's sometimes like psychedelic um, mm. to, to see the world, the awakening that's happened. But those oxytocin levels stay high for a really long time and I think they create a new barometer in us as women. Mm, I totally agree. And, and they do stick around because of the brain plasticity, you know, because a mother's brain is wired for learning and change and, you know, new experiences, then those, those oxytocin pathways get bedded down in a totally new way. Talk more about that. I think that's so interesting. What is going on in a woman's brain then? Oh, it's just fascinating (laughs) let's see uh you'll have to read the book for the (laughs) the long version but um 
But, you know, that, so it's a combination of both the oxytocin and the plasticity. And most people understand that so teenagers, for example, have highly plastic brains. It's why they feel emotionally a bit all over the place and they're on a bit of a roller coaster. It's why they're tired. You know, it's why they're sometimes a bit unpredictable or irrational or forgetful and all of those kind of things. Um, the same thing's happening when we become mothers, but most mothers don't realise that that's what ha is happening to them. So they can start to feel like they're really stupid or there's something wrong with them or people can start to sort of judge them for, you know, behaviour that may be a little bit out of character or, you know, just odd. And actually what's happening is, is a very, very important, you know, evolutionary biological tactic which is preparing us for the next stage of our lives and I often liken it a little bit to um, upgrading the operating system of your brain everyone knows when they have to upgrade the operating system on their phone or their computer at first it's really annoying because you can't find anything and you can't remember how it works and the button that used to do this now does that and the shortcuts have changed and that kind of thing but once you get used to it, you go, oh, yeah, this operating system is actually better than the old one. <laughs> and that's what's going on in your brain. You are preparing for a new life. You're going to need completely different skills as a mother than you did, you know, in your career or, you know, in, in other roles that you've previously had in your life. So your brain is, is just rewiring. It's in this stage of being highly plastic being very open to learning new things. And at the same time, that can be overwhelming. But when you realise what a precious um, gift that is, you know, then it can completely change your, your perspective and, and make mothers feel much more kind towards themselves. Yeah, and understand that what they're doing is actually, what they're yielding to is in, incredibly beneficial and it's of value. Mm. Well, I can. I suppose it, it's so aligned with what we say in she births um, about giving preference and allowing yourself to slow down and finish work as early as possible uh, is a really important thing to allow the endorphins to cloud the frontal lobe, the neocortex during pregnancy. So all those times that you forget the keys or you can't remember what you were doing or, you know, you've forgotten how long the lamb should be roasted for or whatever it is, all of that is your endorphins starting to build more and more in the lead up to birth. And but it's part of a continuum that's taking you forward into parenting as well. Mm -hmm. And that slowing down is also when you start to go into hopefully some boredom Yes, and you and you kind of have to go through that boredom, don't you, to find yep. the new pace, the new gear. That's right, the new gear, the new identity as well. But boredom and is similar to ironing, to scrubbing floors, to going for a walk. And when you're in your body and you're doing something repetitive, like going for a walk, one foot in front of the other, a rhythm with your breath, and maybe you're listening to a podcast maybe for some time it's probably good if you just don't because the brain goes into a naturally self-reflective and autobiographical mode and it starts to simply, if you just watch it, it will start to reassess you and your life and where you're at in your journey and it will literally start to come up with the answers and the steps that you require for the next step going forward. And this is all happening in pregnancy 
the innate wisdom and those innate hormones are guiding us forward into the next phase of motherhood if we just give them the space to let mm. that parasympathetic nervous system take over the endorphins and the oxytocin. It sounds so perfect how it just leads into this neuroplastic, new learning operating system mm. it's described as well, right? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's just two ways of describing the same thing. Mm. And, and I think for, for some people, one, one description will hit home better and for other people, mm. you know, another one will, will help them to understand better. So it's really useful, isn't it, to have those different ways of mm. explaining what's going on. Um, do you have one more top tip for the first 40 days? well boundaries is a big one yeah boundaries is super important isn't it nourishing food your recipe book is gold what else um i think listening to yourself and if you are going crazy inside the house like go out and put your feet in the earth i would um and, and you know if you really feel a craving to go down to the sushi train then you know do that as well if you really really want to I would say stay off blue light as well. I would say um, you're setting your child up their first circadian rhythms as well. Mm -hmm. And women are definitely, we all are, definitely too exposed to blue light via technology. And although your sleep patterns aren't what they used to be, there will be interrupted nighttime sleep. I would encourage you to maybe put red light globes in the bathroom. I know there's some families up here in Byron that have been talking to me about that so that we're not getting that blue light. Interrupt mm. our melatonin, which is closely connected to our oxytocin as well. So stay off the apps and stay off Facebook chats, you know, after the sun goes down. I think yeah, I think that's a great idea. And I think if people find they are getting lonely and they, they're needing to connect to people online, it's probably a really good prompt to connect with people in real life instead, you know, that really what they're craving is actual friendships. It's the actual village. That's right. Yeah, and that's what at SheBirth we create soul mama circles. And I think that's a really important way as well as virtual and face-to-face -face coming to mm. And not just talking about, you know, sleep and poo, we're talking about our identity as women and how that's shifting, our sexuality, our relationships. Um, all of this is now in a process of change. Yeah, I love that. And I think my, my top tip for the first 40 days would be really along those lines of, of reaching out and asking for help and being vulnerable you know, and letting people into your life, it's okay if you haven't cleaned the house and it's okay if you're still wearing your PJs at midnight, at midday. Yeah. <laughs> I hope you're wearing them at midnight. Yeah. But, um, but the most important thing is to let people in, let people into that space, people who you love and you trust, um, you know, find those people who, who can be there in that moment with you because those people will be friends for life because the other thing people don't often realize is that if your oxytocin is high it's not just to bond you with your baby but it'll bond you with everyone else too so you you're open to forging all sorts of new strong relationships in that stage of your life as well totally absolutely i love it i, I think one distinction we need to talk about is you know the type of doula i am the birth doula and the type of doula you are. And a lot of people might employ me and other doulas on our secret she births list 
thinking that that's enough for them postpartum. We give two, generally a, a birthing doula will give two postnatal visits, but in that time, say two two-hour visits, um, yeah, it's great, it's in your home, but a lot of that can be used to just talk about the birth and a lot of that can be used to just help with breastfeeding a little bit and do things around the house and, yeah, but it's generally not enough for the majority of people, right? No, and I would say most of my clients, I would say, I think most have both a birth doula and a postpartum doula. You know, so it's a, it's a lot of, a block a lot of people in the industry have too. Like I know a lot of my students, they're new as a postpartum doula, they'll say, oh, but she's already got a birth doula and she's already got a home birth midwife and she's already got a cleaner um, she's not going to hire me. And I'm like, no, that's exactly the kind of person who's going to hire you. Um, you know, so I, I, I agree. I think um, I think they're very different skills. We bring very different things. And I would never presume to, um, you know, think that I, I'm uh, going to help with their birth. I mean, that's just not what my skill is. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I do have some birth rulers who I work very closely with. We often will refer you know our clients to each other knowing that they've got that good that good team yeah the same philosophy the same approach Mm. but more like what do you actually do like how many visits because birth doula it's normally two before the birth on call for a four-week period 38 to 42 and then attending the birth as long as that couple needs and then two postnatal so what's what happens with the postpartum doula yeah, look, it's so different and, um, yeah, everyone's really different because everyone brings their own sort of skills. So some people do massage, some people cook, some people, um, you know, are herbalists or naturopaths or nutritionists or acupuncturists or, you know, like so a lot of the time they'll have these other elements that they can bring. Um, and then there's also the different ways that people work. So although the in-home care is kind of what people traditionally think of as postpartum care, um, and it's probably the primary role of a doula, but also most of us, I think, would have other things that we do too, like maybe a meal delivery service or we run mums groups. Um, you know, so I think it's much more varied really than being a birth um, mm. doula. And I think, um, you know, I think it means that people can find the right person for, for, for them. What would be the ultimate, do you think? Like if you... Um, we're providing the ultimate package for somebody. Well, you know, the way they do it in traditional cultures, mm. which doesn't really work here, but is they, they would have a, you know, like in, in lots, of, lots of parts of Asia, um, in China they call it a, a confinement lady. Yeah. They would have someone who would move in for the first 40 days um, and basically just run the, the house, you know, just quietly do the laundry, do the cooking, do the cleaning, but also have this really amazing knowledge of breastfeeding and, you know, massage and herbs and, and nutritious food and that kind of thing. Um, so, you know, a lot of the time there are people in Australia who are often from Chinese backgrounds who will yeah. bring or Indian backgrounds who will bring someone over for that first 40 days and have that, you know, 100% total living care which means you can literally lie in bed all day if you want to yeah and the only time you couples do that we've had some yeah and and then the only t- time you leave the house is if you want to because like you were saying if someone really wants to go to the sushi train that's great but what you really want to avoid is like 
oh, we've run out of food and I have to go to Coles, but I'm exhausted and my milk's leaking and, um, you know, I don't know how to use the car seat yet. And those are the kinds of things we want to be avoiding when we're talking about going out. Um, you yeah. know, so that would be great. But then for a lot of people now in our culture, we value our privacy too much. We might not want someone living with us. And also there's that care's not available. I mean, most of us couldn't afford it and very few people are even offering that kind of service. Well, anymore. It's funny, like I know, I think I know four families that have brought people over from mm. Asia to live in and two of the four sent the person home earlier. They found yeah. it too intense mm-hmm. to have them in their home and to, it was just too intense to have it. And I think it can be quite old-fashioned um, and a little bit infantilizing to women. Sometimes, not always, but sometimes that, that traditional cultural care, they're very much like you can't eat this food because it's too windy and you can't go outside and you can't wash your hair. And, you know, there's so many rules and things that um, for kind of young modern women, it can just feel too controlling and, and oppressive, you know, for, for the way that we value privacy and independence now so yeah it's not always a good fit and not everyone's like that but there's definitely a you know that can definitely be a risk yeah yeah which i mean i thought in ayurveda like i think it's like a you know daily massage would be like amazing yeah couple of weeks would you say or a couple of massages a week yeah I've even read some people have two massages a day in those early weeks yeah and um and so and definitely daily you know but and again for most people in our culture it's probably not something that they can either afford or that is even available to them but even if you I think aiming for like a weekly visit for the first six or 12 weeks is great. But the other thing to keep in mind that most people forget is six weeks is really just the beginning. Um, And most really good postpartum doulas will offer some kind of follow-up care. Maybe the in-home care might, you know, taper off around then, you know, six or 12 weeks. But a lot of people will run um, either online programs, forums, mums groups, phone support, um, you know, a physical weekly or monthly mums group, something like that, that that means that they can stay connected and um, and still, because the transition is huge. I mean, once you get through that first six weeks, often babies will wake up, you know, at about four months, they'll have a sleep regression. And then at six months, they start feeding. And then the mum might be thinking of returning to work. And, you know, there's just so much going on yeah so i think really aiming for longer term support is probably really important that's great one family we had um were really struggling or mum in particular felt like she was actually on the verge of going mad um after her baby was born with Mm -hmm. the interrupted sleep very quickly very soon into the journey i think she was about three weeks and you know, this is where it comes back to our sort of philosophy is nobody gets off scot-free in the perinatal journey. Like everyone has a moment of big challenge that we're going to have to call mm. in for and learn new skills for and go through a massive shift, a rite of passage at some point. Now, she'd had a great pregnancy, a great birth, but I think two to three weeks into postpartum, even when her baby was sleeping she couldn't sleep she was mm. so aggravated 
And the best remedy ended up being for her to literally walk down from South Bondi to the icebergs, which is our swimming pool. It's got a little massage centre. And Mm. for, I think it was two weeks, every second day, she just had a 30-minute massage. I think she Mm. started the first week 30 minutes every day and then went to every two days. And then after that, it was like it just allowed her nervous system to adjust to mm. the changes to settle. She needed her just nervous system to um, recalibrate and rewind. Yeah. Which is the other huge value of a postpartum doula that people don't really often understand, but is that she already knows all of those people in your community. So if you ring up saying I'm having trouble sleeping or I'm having trouble with breastfeeding or the baby's not sleeping or, you know, anything, I'm constipated or whatever, that doula will be like, don't worry, I know exactly the person who you need to go and see, you know. Um, so having that network opened up to you without you having to find who you can trust and if they're any good and, you know, asking a thousand people and spending all that time on Google, it's just so reassuring to know that you've got someone there who you can say, help, what do I do about this? Yeah, and do it immediately. I think, you know, the number one rule with breastfeeding that I have is like the moment there's an issue, get the help. Like you don't yeah. like, um, not to sort of interfere with your own intuition in solving a little glitch in the process but if you've got a bigger issue that's coming up and you haven't found a way through like immediately get the help and I think that's what you want it's we can start to be so tired in that postpartum period or a little bit overwhelmed that you get lost in the process and you don't call out for help you, you kind of lose your center with the whole thing mm, yeah I agree I think I think that asking for help is really absolutely the most critical thing um and and we're just not taught to do that again in our masculine society we're taught to do everything alone um you know and often we can be too proud to admit that we're struggling or you know to make us look vulnerable or admit you know what we're going through and that kind of thing and and it's kind of understandable because we do have this history of mother blaming and even you know having mothers Um, children taken away from them or institutionalizing mothers or giving them drugs you know we've done so many things over the past sort of 100 or so years to really try and um, control and and numb women to their true identity and their true power Um, no wonder it's a little bit scary for women to come out and admit that they're that they're emotional and that they want connection and that they need help you know it can be very scary thing yeah, and which ties again again with birth. Birth is such a great or preparing and then going through birth is such an important um, training ground for the postpartum because in order to take care of your baby during labour, you have to allow yourself to be taken care of as well, mm-hmm. loved and cared. And if a woman doesn't look like a goddess throughout labour, she ain't being cared for enough. And um, that's what we need to allow and be receiving, be open and be... Partners learn how to care for mums. and yeah. Yes, I we love that. Talk forever. <laughs> I know, and I was thinking that's actually a really good point to end on because I think yeah. that's really just one of the most important things, isn't it? Um, but do you have anything else you want to add before we wrap up? Um, uh, look, I would love to talk to you, but let's do it again around all the postnatal practices that exist um, around the world. Yeah, I agree. Let's let's do more. Let's do another one. <laughs> let's do another one. What about you? Have you got any other final points? 
anything? Oh, no. I mean, we've covered a lot, haven't we? But there's still so much, um, so much that we could talk about. But let's leave it for another time. Yeah. Um, maybe the last thing is where can people find you? We'll, we can pop yeah. all the links up in the show yeah. notes. Yeah. So I'm at shebirths.com. And what's your URL? Newbornmothers.com. So yeah, easy. So you've got online childbirth education as well as face-to-face live classes on the east coast of Australia. That's right. And I'll just launched in Byron. So we're launching in new areas by invitation. So people are welcome to invite me over, over mm-hmm. to Perth or wherever. And what about you? What have you got for, to offer people at the moment? Yeah, well, my primary work is is training now. I train um, postpartum doulas and other postpartum professionals in Newborn Mothers Collective if people are interested in that. Uh, and if they're not wanting to be a professional, if they're just just a mum, that's a terrible thing to say. Yes. They are a mum. <laughs> yeah. And um, interested in learning more about the changes that are going on in their brain and how to build their village and, and boundaries and all of this stuff that we've talked about. Um, then I do have a freebie on my my website. We can share the link too in the show notes, but it's the the um, guide to building a 21st century village. I love it. I love it. Sounds fantastic. Sounds Good. Cool. We'll put all those notes together. And thanks for being here, Julia. I'm glad. We yeah, got- I know we've been it's been a long time, hasn't it? We've been planning this, so I'm glad we finally pulled it off and we will have to do it again and we look forward to your book coming out too have you got a a date or anything um you know what i'm writing it in 40 days if i write 1200 words per day i will have finished the 50,000 page book in in 40 days so i am that's an awesome goal isn't it i was like yay 40 here we go um so yeah nearly another couple of months and um yeah i'm sure it'll be out soon i'm very excited awesome Awesome. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. Good. And we'll chat again soon. Okay. Bye. Bye. Here at Newborn Mothers, we believe that every family has the right to high quality postpartum care. If you want to join us, learn more at newbornmothers.com. And if you like this podcast, we'd really love you to leave us a five-star review and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.